Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week. And at the end, we're going to crown the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. All right. So before we dive into the movies that we watched this week, there's a few pieces of news and whatnot that we want to kind of go through and chat about because there were some pretty exciting things that came up this week that we have some thoughts and feelings about that we want to share with everybody. There was a deleted scene from the Batman, and I not I'm not going to go into any details about it because it kind of spoils some certain things about the movie, and we are dedicated to keeping things spoiler free here. But this deleted scene, which is about five minutes long, has got me even more excited for the world that Matt Reeves is setting up in this Batman universe, and the speculation conversations I've had with with you and with some co-workers are just as who are just as excited about it as i am is just feeding into that excitement for me well i think you texted me and he said i have a video to show you and i'm so excited and i was like okay um and then i got home and you mentioned it again and i was like all right yeah but i think we had stuff to do and dinner to have and then all of a sudden you're like okay can I show you the video now? And I'm like, oh, you're really excited about oh, this. Inside, I, as soon as you got home, inside, I was vibrating because I'm like, I need to put this in front of you. And I think it was like a few, maybe not a few, but uh, several hours, a couple hours before you actually got to show me. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I heard about this. It, it wasn't a surprise, but obviously I had not been like gasping to immediately watch it. Um, <laughs> but I really liked it, too. It was really great. Yeah, it's introduction of certain things. Again, it it got me so excited and it just feels so right for this universe and it feels fresh. It evokes certain feelings as other really great movies that we both really love, just in tone and kind of execution. So it's it's probably one of the best deleted scenes I've ever seen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, I'm me being me, I feel like it was a it was filmed to release as a deleted scene and was never actually intended to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was strategy, but... Well, it got me. It did, clearly. <laughs> um, but it is really good, and it is... If it was a strategy, it was a smart one. I agree. Um, so, very excited about the Batman and what it continues to bring out, I guess. Uh, still hoping to see it a second time. Probably going to have to take my mom to it or something because i know that you're not gasping to <laughs> I, I, I will again. see it again but um i don't have to yes and i won't force you to that's very nice <laughs> i guess <It's>, yeah 
Um, so while we are on mostly a movie journey, we do try to slot in a few TV shows here or there that we're excited about. And the new season of Atlanta just started. So this is this is its third season. Yeah, but it's I believe it's been four years since its second season aired. So in a minute. Yeah. So they released their first two episodes and they were great. Yeah, they were really, really good. We had tried to rewatch the first two seasons because it's been so many years. Mm-hmm. But aside from the fact that we typically don't love to binge watch things, we are a uh, we have held fast to our cable for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, for 10 years uh, because we like to watch things week to week and talk about them in between and think about them and we find we remember shows better when we watch them week to week as opposed to like watching them in a 24 to 48 hour time slot and then it leaves our mind until the year or later that it the next season comes out but we just really are not totally vibing tv shows right now unless it's an episode yeah we had a lot of reality tv on our plate yeah, we cut it all out. Cut it all out. Yeah. There were shows that we were feeling like kind of eh about. Um, cut them out. Cut those out. But Atlanta is one that we really wanted to watch. So while we didn't rewatch the first two seasons, we, we watched two episodes of the first season. And then I was like, I remember these pretty well. And there were a couple of things that um, we weren't totally enamored with in terms of like little tiny moments. Um, that we didn't think were as thoughtful as they should have been mm-hmm. um, in the first season. So I just went and read the Wikipedia summaries for all the episodes for the first two seasons and then read them out loud to you. And I was like, I actually remember this pretty well, which is impressive that it's been four years. We've, I believe we've only watched them once and like week to week. Mm-hmm. But we talked about it a lot because we really liked the show. So it was exciting to have it back. And those first two episodes were phenomenal. Um, yeah. Like I can't recommend them enough and donald glover has um described the show as an, a, a black twin peaks and it Very is that yeah <laughs> um, and then he has talked about wanting this season to be a black fairy tale and i didn't read that until after we had watched the first two episodes and it made me kind of reflect back on those two episodes and be like yeah i'm really intrigued with what he's doing and i'm, I'm glad the show's back if you've never watched it before it's on disney plus now in canada and i'd say it's worth checking out Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's all of those things and so much more. The first two episodes went in directions I wouldn't have expected the show yeah. to go in and telling stories I didn't expect it to tell. And it's consistently surprising and always engaging yeah. for me. So I'm I'm very excited to see. Um I'm glad it's back and I'm excited to see where it goes next. Agreed. Um on the topic of TV, something else I wanted to throw in here was just before we hopped on and started recording. We watched, I think it's episode seven of Severance on Apple. And I just wanted to talk a bit about how much I love the feeling when we're watching a TV show and there's just an episode that just kicks it into high gear and you're just like, I am all in on this show. And this was the episode for us. Yeah, this was the first moment. I I am known to you and probably nobody else for loving to go to Reddit or imdb or wikipedia or all of the above you're you're such a little great research (laughs) assistant (laughs) i've been paid to do that many times in my life um but this is for me (laughs) i like to do research for me this is for me and then i cultivate um the best of it and share it with you 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, I I haven't actually felt compelled to look up the Wiki, not Wikipedia, sorry, the Reddit page for a TV show in a really long time. And this particular ever episode of Severance, even though we've been pretty consistently watching it, sometimes like not necessarily the day it comes out, but usually before the next one comes out. Um, this made me want to like see what people were saying. And there were several moments where I was like, oh my goodness. Um, and I somebody said on, on Reddit, they were like, how is anybody calling this a slow show? I gasped like 10 times in this episode alone. <laughs> um, but I, I'm really... Of the, like, I think we only are actually consistently watching three shows right now mm-hmm. because we are pretty into movies. We, there's been times in our lives where we've been way more into TV and less into movies, and then it, it's the complete opposite right now. Um, but Severance is keeping us engaged, and we are very ruthless right now about cutting TV if it's not keeping us engaged. So good for you, Severance. Yeah, and I, 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 I love all the performances across the show. Like, everybody's so great. Everybody even more in this episode i felt like show, showed up quite substantially so that just added to the whole the whole feeling of elation that i was feeling as the episode <laughs> wow, was going elation. on that's exciting yeah. oh i was just yeah i like i started tearing up i was laughing i was just getting pumped um, also impressive because we watched it at like 11 on a sunday morning yeah very excited about that and then there's just two follow-up pieces from previous episodes that I wanted to touch right. on quick. Okay. I know that this is a, a longer preamble than uh, than usual, but I wanted to get into this. So on, I can't remember, was it, I think it was last week's episode that we watched. Mistress America. Mistress yeah. America. And we made the comment, okay, Lola Kirk looks really familiar to yeah. us. But, but we haven't seen her in we anything. We haven't seen her in anything. Yeah. And that was sticking with me quite a bit. So I'm just like, okay, I'm going to hop on Google and see what this is. Turns out Lola Kirk is Jemima Kirk's sister. Makes sense because they have the same last name. <laughs> <laughs> totally. But like they also have a, a lot of similar features, but also mannerisms a yeah, little bit. And and voices. Yeah. So for if you even don't... though Lola Kirk wasn't speaking in a British accent. Yeah. It was interesting. Similar voices still. Yeah. Uh Jemima Kirk, um, I don't know her from very many things, but she was in the most recent season of Sex Education and she was also in Girls mm-hmm. uh, on HBO. But yeah, I've and then I think that one of our friends also came to us with the research of... <laughs> <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, once you know, you can't unknow it. It's the... Yeah. How how we didn't pick up on that just on our own. It's one of those things when you're like watching something, you're like, what have I seen this person in before? And then it finally clicks and you remember, except in this case, it wasn't actually her. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So glad I found that out. Um, and the last piece, which is really exciting. Um, so in our inaugural episode we talked about the movie fresh and we're very much in love with that movie and how awesome it was and we even named jojo t gibbs character as our inaugural rad dad of the week Mm -hmm. so we posted that on instagram on our stories and while we didn't get any direct engagement (laughs) something that's pretty cool is that it was the post was seen by jojo t gibbs but also by by, director mimi cave by the director mimi cave which is totally cool. Yeah, they didn't talk to us beyond that, but <laughs> yeah. they saw it. <laughs> yeah, they were, they took a, a brief moment of their day to be like, my name's attached to this. What's this? <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Um, but that's a win. You know? That's a win. And we're, at, we're slowly inching our way to 100 followers on Instagram. Yeah, I think and we're like three away right now. So very excited. <laughs> <laughs> 
just two little guys in our basement making this for our 97 Instagram followers, of which maybe a third actually listen. Yeah. But thank you to those of you who do. Yeah. we're. This is still kind of the, the bright spot in our week. Yeah. So it's pretty fun. I'm very happy to do it. And happy to engage with the JoJo T. Gibbs and Mimi Caves out there. Yeah. Okay. Let's actually talk about the movies we watched, watched this week. This was a weird week. Yeah. Because... Yeah, just like the collection that we watched, I feel like is a little bizarre. Yeah. But I'm still really excited to talk about it and had a really fun movie watching week. We didn't see anything in the theater this week. I had it in my head that, um, is it everything, everywhere, all at once? Yeah. That that was coming out this week. And I'm so like, that's one of my most anticipated movies. Same. Um, And then all of a sudden it wasn't playing at any of the theaters. And I'm like, what? Like, I thought this was going to get a fairly wide release. Like, more like X than, like, After Yang. Yeah. And I guess it's not out this week. So that was a little disappointing. We even, like, checked to see if there was anything playing in the theater we wanted to see. Ghostbusters Afterlife was playing at the cheap theater. And I was like, we haven't seen that, but we decided not to go. So it was all home stuff. Um, So I'm going to get into the first movie that we watched this week, which I picked. Um, I finally pushed us to bite the bullet and... um, do a free trial of the Criterion channel, which there are many movies on there that we want to watch. And I picked the 1966 movie Persona. So this movie was directed and written by Ingmar Bergman. um, And I think we're going to have some conversations about how in seeing this film, it becomes very clear that we know nothing about cinema history because we had never seen a movie by Ingmar Bergman. And he's clearly an important part of the lineage of cinema across time. Yeah. Um, this movie is starring B.B. Anderson and Liev Ullman, um, who I believe is in, like, near everything that Bergman did. Um, so kind of that, like... Muse. Muse auteur yeah. thing going on that we see a lot. Um, I'm I'm not going to read the entire one-sentence synopsis. I'm going <laughs> to hear right. a portion of it because I feel like this is a cool movie to maybe not know a ton about um so i'm just gonna say that it's about a nurse who is put in charge of an actress who is not speaking wonderful that's it (laughs) i didn't really know anything about this movie going into it i had two movies in mind and i said to you are you feeling something that's more like fresh or something that's more like after yang and you said after yang and then it turns out this was nothing like after yang (laughs) so i had i didn't really know what i was getting into and we established that in like the first 30 seconds (laughs) oh yeah there is a series of flashing images some of them very graphic about the body um fair warning there's some graphic graphic sexuality and nudity in this film that like i wasn't necessarily expecting from a 1966 (laughs) black and white criterion channel movie Learn my lesson. And and then we were like, whoa, this is something else. The f- first thing that came up for me, I'm going to talk about after, because I want to ask you, what did you think? I like this a lot. So yeah. <laughs> um, I had to, you know, immediately, it's a lot to take in. It's kind of, it's, while it evoked a lot of very David Lynchian kind mm-hmm. of feelings and vibes, and while, you know, I've totally drank the david lynch kool-aid a while Mm -hmm. ago both of us have Mm -hmm. and we essentially anything we watch by him we're just enamored with this is because this is kind of similar kind of vibe i had to sit with it for a little bit (laughs) after um even while watching and just kind of appreciate everything that i was taking in but after all of that um reflecting back on it i loved it i thought it was yeah i thought it was great something that i felt 
immediately while watching it and then right after was how contemporary this still feels. Yeah, yeah. For a 1966 movie, like very few, I mean, again, we're kind of starting to dig into the back catalog of influential and important cinema. Yeah, it's on Criterion. It's considered an influential film. And also, I don't know if we've talked about it, but I'll just speak to it quickly. So the Criterion Collection, just kind of a little bit of an explanation Mm -hmm. of what that is. We love it. What it does is it kind of picks some of the biggest and most important films across the history of film, and they remaster some of the older films. And then, like, we're big physical media collectors, Mm -hmm. so they'll make really nice packaging artwork, Mm -hmm. and they'll include a bunch of exclusive interviews and bonus features and stuff like that, and just really dive deep into what made this movie and what makes this movie important in the history of film. And the Criterion channel is just a streaming service that offers all of that to you and what is probably going to influence us to buy a bunch of physical media yeah, from I mean, it. <laughs> to, to take a quick little tangent there and in, in the uh i am going to make us both sound really pretentious here but we we are like maximalists i own more books than i need to own we own just more physical stuff than we need to but we both like that when we moved in together we both had huge dvd collections yeah like this is pre-blu-ray yeah yeah so we yeah. both had like independently really big dvd collections that we then brought together and i think we got rid of some of our doubles because we had a lot of overlap in what we owned we kind of looked through and we're like who has a nicer version of it or like does somebody have the the souped up version of it or is there one whose dvd is scratched and then we gave away our doubles or took them to um second second hand places but then over the years of moving and streaming sites becoming more common um we kind of were like we don't need to have all of these like maybe we don't need to have movies we know we're never going to watch again because we've given them another try and realized we don't like them or watch them for the first time we both used to buy things we'd never seen before and just buy them um which we've stopped doing because there's other options out there than bringing another piece of plastic into the house that's just gonna get taken away eventually Um, in my teenage years i was it was pretty much that i would just go dump a whole paycheck on stuff i thought the artwork looked cool whether it was music or movies yeah me too (laughs) but add books to that yeah um and i worked at a bookstore during high school so it was really easy to just walk the shelves and be like i like that cover i'm gonna buy that book (laughs) yeah um so we've since kind of called our collection every time we've moved Mm -hmm. which like maybe is gonna happen again here soon but we've called it pretty recently and we pretty much now only buy movies criterion yeah. Like we bought Parasite, even though you can watch it on Netflix, but we were like, we want to own this on Criterion. So yeah, Criterion Collection, pretentious perhaps to be like, I and and ununique, um, but we do like it. Yeah. But back to my point that I was making about Persona is, as I said, it, it felt very contemporary and in a way that like 2001 Space Odyssey still feels, feels that way. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm starting to wonder, and it's piqued my interest, that maybe there's this kind of era of movies in the 60s that are just crushing it. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel like watching this movie, like, so the thing I was going to bring up is that that opening sequence where I was like, oh, this isn't at all what I thought it was going to be, made me think two things about the fact that we don't know shit about cinema. Mm-hmm. One, we've never seen an Ingmar Bergman film, and we don't pretend to know anything about cinema. Like, no. we're not experts. That's fine. Yeah. We just watch things. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually new things come across our plate, new old things. And that's exciting. The second thing was, I was, it was the David Lynch of it all where I was like, oh, 
Eraserhead was clearly influenced by this. Yeah. And then when I looked it up afterwards, yeah, David Lynch has said that Persona is one of the most influential movies of his career. And so the irony of, we've used the phrase several times, the Twin Peaks effect. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, is it the Bergman effect? And then are we going to watch another movie where we go, oh, Igmar Bergman was influenced by this, right? And that it's not the 1990s that was the contemporary thing or the amazing thing that brought this new style of filmmaking into being. But yeah, I was like, I, I very heavily felt the influence on David Lynch's Eraserhead and on his Mulholland Drive in this movie. Yeah, I agree. I got Twin Peaks effect <laughs> in, in like in a very ironic way. And this isn't the first movie we've watched this week. This is the first of two that I feel, at least for me, I was feeling that effect. Yeah, as me well. too. Yeah. Um, while you were talking, again, I'm getting tangenty, but I, I was just kind of reflecting on the fact that, you know, I feel a younger version of us would have just been like, yeah, we know all about these movies. Like, yeah. yeah, we're film buffs. Like, like we got it. <laughs> I'm not. But like, I like movies. And, I'm not a film buff. And just like revel in the ignorance of being a 90s kid that's seen <laughs> a few more movies than some other people. Um, but th- that's just not who we are now. Like, we're just so open to so many different like we can watch persona and then we can go watch infinity war five times and both are okay that's okay we can love both of them for their for what they do individually and i I don't know that that just what you said just kind of made me think that i'm I'm grateful that we're on this this journey together and that we're not close-minded enough to you know think we're uh, better than anybody that's although we certainly have been in the past yeah like when i was a teenager i was like that completely um one thing that stands out to me about this movie is um despite the fact that we i the only thing i really knew about ingmar bergman was his movie virgin the virgin spring and it was funny because we watched a couple of the like little extras that criterion channel has on them about each film which is really cool because we both have been like special feature on dvd people when we were young Mm -hmm. (laughs) i get a cameo from our cat here just for he's, fair he's yowling um is that uh, the virgin spring was very influential on west craven's the last house on the left so that's all i knew about igmar bergman um one thing that was really cool was that unlike when we watched night of the living dead and it was like this is an influential film we know it's an influential film we've seen several parts of it we know how it ends i didn't know anything about this movie and so while it's this really influential film that like many people love for good reason um, and know a lot about I was able to go into it fresh yeah. seeing it for the first time which is something that I longed for when we watched Night of the Living Dead and so how cool that there's still directors and filmmakers and genres and periods of film that are totally undiscovered to us while other people know all about them that we have yet to discover that's an exciting and cool thing yeah yeah, I totally agree, agree with that. And again, Night of the Living Dead, another movie from the 60s and another movie on the Criterion Collection. Yeah, so maybe, and I mean, yeah, uh, 2001 Space Odyssey is the 60s. Maybe we just love the 60s and we haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Yeah, I used to do this thing. I love Stephen King, like Stephen King books. Mm-hmm. Unabashedly love Stephen King books, where I would save some of his classics so that I could read them when he was dead. Yeah. Or no longer making writing books yeah. so that I would have new, new good. Not that he hasn't written some good books recently, but that like I, I purposefully didn't read The Stand, even though I owned it from the time that I was like 13, 14 until uh, I read it during the pandemic. 
um, even though it's one of his most famous books. And I've kept some of his books that are really, really well known and like considered his best unread so that I still have those to discover later. And watching this film felt like that, like how cool that I get to watch these for the first time, fresh eyes, knowing nothing about them when I'm in my 30s. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head because it's it is it's so cool, and what better time to read the stand than the pandemic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, something else I wanted to say about this movie is that it's gorgeous. Yeah, I have that written in my notes. Gorgeous exclamation yeah, mark! Like I think both of us to some degree wrote this in our letterbox reviews that you could pause any frame mm-hmm. in this movie and pull it out and put it up on the wall in your house. It, yeah, it's a stunning film yeah it's so gorgeous to look at and it's all it's all shot in black and white so it again i feel like you know it's films like this that black and white for me is kind of 180 as i've gotten older where yeah. it used to kind of signify old boring boring you know not as i don't know maybe technologically advanced mm-hmm. um but now it's just like this is contemporary. This is art. This is everlasting. Or it's even beyond that, because we are heightening our pretension right now. Is <laughs> Let's just revel in it. Yeah. Let's, let's, keep, let's keep it going. <laughs> is, you know, it's a stylistic choice wielded for a particular reason. Yeah. Right? You know, like, come on, come on. One of our more beloved newer films mm-hmm. of the last year or so is in black and white for a particular reason. Right? Like, so... That it doesn't have to be in color or, or it doesn't have to be in black and white. Like filmmakers are making particular stylistic choices for a particular reason. And now rather than just being like, oh, black and white, it's like, why is this film in black and white? And did it serve it? And in this one, it absolutely did. Yeah. As a, a graphic designer by trade, I always default to black and white first mm. before I do anything, just because that's the S that's the the simplest essence of an image or something that you're looking at it can be the most graphical it can it shows the most contrast um and it just kind of exposes any faults or you know it exposes faults but also lets all of the positive or all of the beneficial aspects of something shine through even Mm. more clearly before you get into adding color or gradients or anything like that so I that's what I feel here like there's I I just I'm finding now black and white films aren't they're kind of just laying it all out there Mm. they're not trying to hide anything or pull the wool over our eyes at all so colored films are big time Um, (laughs) they're all just liars yeah so if you (laughs) try to trick us if you watch films that are in color yeah you are a you're you're a sham (laughs) (laughs) as all of the rest of the films we watched this week were in color um one last thing i want to say is that you know what i mean though sure (laughs) (laughs) i haven't thought about it that deeply other than that this film is really stunning yeah (laughs) and i think that the black and white contributed to that (laughs) i felt like i was getting onto a deeper level here and it's just like (laughs) man i'm a dork (laughs) i like you even though you're a dork (laughs) thank you (laughs) you're welcome now i'm gonna say a really pretentious thing which is that um, I've mentioned this before, but sometimes I watch these movies like an Eraserhead or a more recent one, The Green Knight, where I'm like, I was totally immersed in it, totally engaged. And then I left it being like, I'm not very smart. I have no idea what that meant. Um, and I think sometimes filmmakers want to be opaque on purpose. 
But this film is abstract and bizarre um, and doesn't necessarily have a clear meaning. But this was the type of film like that that made me feel like my own interpretation is accurate and good enough regardless. Like, I didn't feel the need to go and read what other people think about it. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to. I was like, I actually have a something that this film made me feel and what I think it means, at least to me at this point in my life, I feel like I could watch it again and that meaning could change. And I feel like that's okay. Like, I feel like this film was made so that every person can have their own experience with it, their own understanding of it, and that's enough. I don't think there's one clear way this is meant to be seen, whereas there's other films where when I read about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what it meant. Yeah. And Bergman likely had his own understanding of what this film meant to him, but I like really appreciated that. I didn't feel unintelligent for not getting it. Um, I just felt like this film, we've been using this term a lot lately, but was generous in how it its abstraction was done in such a way to allow the viewer to place themselves into it and get what they're going to get out of it without feeling like that's not the correct thing to get out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Which was really refreshing to me. And and again, I think, like you said, it added to this kind of like contemporary feeling to it, even though it's a film made in 1966. And then I have a bone to pick. Yeah. You were my crappy audience member. Go on. Um, we were watching this immersive abstract black and white quiet slow film you pause it and what do you get as a snack chips and dip (laughs) (laughs) so to the left of me chips 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 and i was just like can i tell you to stop eating chips (laughs) uh that didn't go to the movie theater this week but had to get a gripe in Hey, at least it, at least that, you know, I, I, I didn't really think about it till now. So I was definitely that ignorant audience member. And I didn't you didn't give me the talking down to that uh, you gave to uh, the folks at the Metro. That definitely one time. Ro- rolled my eyes, though. Um, all <laughs> this that, guy. <laughs> all that being said, how did this movie make you feel? It inspired me creatively. Mm. Um, that's just kind of how I felt. Because we watched this on a Sunday and I was going to work the next day and I just kind of felt like ready to do some creative stuff. Um, Something else that I really appreciated about it and I was kind of looking at through the lens of the work that I do is just the hyper focus on space and time Mm. throughout this movie. And that's something I kind of want to take away from this and infuse into some of the work that I do, which was great. And it also just, it filled me with so much... Um, hope is not the right word, but I love that this the story. There's there's aspects of this story that is like some well tread ground, but it still felt innovative. It still continues to feel innovative, and that's because it is so captivating and mm-hmm. it is so layered, and you can go to so many different levels with it. So it just made me excited for the things that have aspects of this movie that I already love and it just made me love them um, so much more. So I got to pick uh, a movie the next night too because last week you got a double movie pick with Big and then Phone Booth. Is that what it was? Yeah. Great choices. <laughs> Thank Great you. uses of your mystery movie picks. Um, and so the next night I decided to pick the movie that had been my second or like the two movies I had kind of had 
in mind on Sunday, I decided to pick the other one for Monday. And so we watched Creep 2, which was really exciting. Um, so Creep 2, like Creep 1, is directed by Patrick Bryce and written by Patrick Bryce and Mark Duplass. The, so starring Mark Duplass and welcome newcomer to the Creep body of work, Desiree Akavan, um, playing Sarah. So this film is definitely more violent than the first one, more blood, and has a very surprising uh, nude moment that I was not expecting. I really liked it, but I'm curious. What did you think? Um, I'm just going to preface this with, to add to just how all over the place our past couple weeks have been, we watched this movie on the night where I was having the worst tooth pain of my life. Right. (laughs) Yes. And I was in so much pain, and I was just so out of it. But all that said, I still love this. I had a lot of fun with this. Um, It took what worked really well from the first movie and pushed it even further into fresher territory for the genre, I felt. In terms of the characters, Mark Duplass being back as Joseph, our inaugural bad dad, even he, I felt, evolved the character to new grounds and made him a different breed of antagonist from Mm -hmm. what he was in the first one and i mean without losing any of what he established in in the first creep yeah it took it to that next level um and then yeah i agree with you um the character of sarah brings something completely different from patrick patrick bryce's aaron from creep one and then she kind of continues to subvert those expectations throughout the movie as well. So like it just brought this like this really fresh dynamic between the two of them and what this movie was trying to do. And, you know, we talked a lot about how creep one kind of brought a freshness to the genre and this did it as well in a different way. Yeah. This, um, just if anybody didn't listen to our episode about the first creep, I'll give a little bit of context about what the movie's about. So it's basically the same plot as the first film, a uh, video artist looking for work drives to a remote house in the forest to meet a man um, who is offering her $1,000 to film him yep. for the day, which is essentially the plot of the first film, but with the character of Sarah instead of the character of Aaron. And, you know, we love horror movies. Many a horror sequel is just the first film done again. It's kind of like Chamber of Secrets is Philosopher's Stone with the new villain at the end. Yeah. Um, and this was not that. Yeah. They're such great companion pieces. And I'm curious what they're going to do with Creep 3, if and when it gets made. Um, but there's so much you can get out of this after having seen the first Creep. Like, the dramatic irony is so well used with, mm-hmm. like, what we know about Mark Duplass's character, right? We know who he is because we've lived through it in the first film. And then Sarah's the new and surprising character. So the the tables are flipped. In the first film, we are aligned with Aaron and we trust him and we're not sure what to expect from the character of Joseph. And that's flipped in this film um, where it's actually Sarah, I think, who continually surprises us. And we kind of know what to expect from Mark Duplass. I found it, the first film had me experiencing such tension and like I actually felt freaked out, Mm -hmm. which I don't always feel in horror movies anymore. But this one, I just was consistently intrigued and it was funny. It was really funny. So I didn't, I found it less scary, even though it was more violent but I really liked it. Like I, I'm finding it hard to say I liked one better than the other because they're very different films and they just feel like companion pieces to each other. To what you said too, because they've already set us up with Creep 1 and because the Creep 2 
the plot is relying on so many of the same sort of beats as the first one, they've got to find new ways to subvert our expectations. And well, do they have to? They could have just made the same film again. I, I, I know and this is the genius of Mark Duplass and Patrick Bryce and what they're doing here. And also um, Desiree Akavan, who's bringing something fresh here too. Like they could, they could have just done that. Yeah. Like they could have just cashed in on whatever success they had with creep one and just brought it here. And I would have watched they, it and I would have liked it. Yeah. It would have been fun, but this taking it to another level, I was just like, I was, I was so happy they did this. It was, it was so good. There was a scene that you alluded to. And again, I don't want to get into spoilers, but there's, because again, it's shot in this found footage style. So we're kind of always from a, a point of view of somebody, a POV. Um, there's this, there's this one scene that, that you mentioned with some shocking nudity where we, we, it kind of plays out in two ways Mm -hmm. and we see the first POV is from Sarah's point of view. And then the second is from Joseph's and something that was really effective about this scene for me is that it's getting a glimpse into what's important to each of them. So Mm. You know, Sarah is trying to capture something that's really titillating and kind of shocking and out there. And then when we flip it to Joseph's point of view, it's about capturing some emotion and a human reaction as opposed to trying trying to get that sort of out there material. And it, it's done so subtly that I'm like, this is the magic of this movie. And it fe- that particular moment, and if you've seen the film, you know what we're talking about. And if you haven't, I hope you think closely about this scene feels like a meta moment where the filmmakers are saying something about their priorities yeah, and the viewer's priorities. Get asking, like we talked about with Ty West's ex, like these moments where I actually think the filmmakers challenge us to think about what we typically want out of any film or a particular genre of film. You know, I feel this a lot in, in one of my absolute favorite films of all time, Michael Haneke's Funny Games, mm-hmm. where the film asks you to confront why you watch films like this. Um, I feel like there is an interrogation of the viewer and what we expected in that moment. I also want to quickly point out that Mark Duplass's character doesn't go by the name Joseph in this film. And right. we know that, but I think maybe we should just not say what name he goes by. Good call. I don't know if you knew, <laughs> maybe you'd forgotten this, but... <laughs> I did. Um, that's not the name he's going by in this in this movie. Good call. I got to adjust some of my notes. Don't need to get uh, yelled at for it later from all you lovely yeah. handful of people who listen to our episodes. Yeah, for, for all of you sitting there just screaming, that's it's not, not his Joseph. name. Thank you for saving my butt, Kylie. You Appreciate it. Um, all of that being said, how did this movie make you feel? I'm ready for the trilogy, baby. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I'm all in. Yeah. When you told me that they were making a trilogy of this and now after seeing the second one, I'm I it can't come soon enough. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm ready for this to go full circle, or you know, maybe they're doing creep four, five, six. You know, maybe they're building a whole creepy cinematic universe. I'm in. I am in. Yeah, I am. I'm all in for for this, and you know, wherever they want to go from here, I'll be watching. Yeah, if you liked Creep, the original Creep, um, I don't think I ever said the date of this one. You should go check out 2017's Creep Two. Totally different experience, and I think you'll like it. Likewise. All right, so for the next movie of the week, I had gotten served some clips for this just randomly on YouTube, and it reminded me of it. This used to be, and probably still is, one of my favorite movies of all time, and I wanted to rewatch it and just kind of give it the old, does this still hold up? So we watched 1997's Goodwill Hunting. 
Um, it stars Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Minnie Driver, and hilarious Casey Affleck, and the late and great Robin Williams. Um, it's directed by Gus Van Sant and written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, who won the Oscar for the screenplay of this one. Just so you know, the IMDb synopsis is Will Hunting, a janitor at MIT, has a gift for mathematics, but needs help from a psychologist to find direction in his life. Yeah, um, to the point. Yep. Like I said, it came out in 1997, so we're, we're definitely, well, this, we wanted, I was curious to see if it kind of withstood the test of time. Fun little fact, I wrote my English diploma on this movie. <laughs> I, got taught, I got taught it in English class, and I recall spending way too much time during the writing of this diploma trying to th- work in how I could button the end of my essay with how do you like them apples did you do it <laughs> yeah i did do you remember how you did on the diploma um okay <laughs> <laughs> but you gotta write about a movie you love so well there you go and again like i had seen this movie of quite a few times before even getting into grade 12 and being shown in class so i'm like oh i got this in the bag <laughs> i'm writing on goodwill hunting no matter what um yeah so I have a bit of a complicated relationship with this movie uh, all these years later. But before I get into that, I want to hear what you think about this. So I figured out that this is what it was really quickly. Although I thought it was Titanic at first and it was like... You were adamant this was Titanic. It's for some... The music room... Like there's a... <laughs> there's part of the score that just like has a little bit of a like my heart will go on vibe. Um, and I was like, it is a Wednesday night, late at night. Why? Or Thursday. I don't know what day it was. It was during the week. I'm like, why are you picking Titanic? A, yeah. I don't like Titanic. And B, it's like so long. Yeah, it's like 9, 9.30. <laughs> I got to work first thing in the morning. And I specifically had said, make sure you pick a movie that's like an okay runtime because it's late. <laughs> Got it. Titanic. <laughs> Titanic. Um, and I infamously don't like Titanic. So <laughs> anyway, uh, as soon as I figured out it was Goodwill Hunting and not Titanic. You were relieved. I was, but I was also like, I don't know if I want to watch this. And I think this is why I love that we do movies the way we do with the mystery movie picks is I think if you had come to me and been like, let's watch Goodwill Hunting tonight, which I've seen before, I would have been like, I don't feel like it. But I, you know, because I want you to be open to the films that I pick and persona was so out of left field even though there was like a part of me that's like "Ah, i've seen this before and i don't know that i feel like watching it tonight i was like no like you want elliot to be open to your movies when you pick them regardless of what they are so take a deep breath and be open to watching this movie again and then i actually really enjoyed watching it you showed it to me for the first time ever i'd never seen it before did i really yeah i think we watched it um really early in our relationship i remember watching it like in your parents living room so we hadn't moved out yet Hmm. um and it was surprising to me that I hadn't seen it because I did like Gus Van Sant. Um, I was a really big fan of his movie Elephant, mm. which came out in 2003. And I, this is such a goofy, embarrassing story. There's like a edgy character in that, like the artsy kid who um, makes a bracelet out of a fork. And so I did that too. You showed me that movie. <laughs> and I I don't remember most of it. So maybe that's one we need to revisit. But I do remember that character. Oh, that's one I probably can't revisit because I just can't do school violence movies anymore. That's, I just can't. That's Working in a school, I can't do it. But And I don't know if it would hold up or if I would like it. The, you know, as a teenager, I really liked it. But one of my absolute favorite movies of all time, it's in my letterbox top four, is My Own Private Idaho which came out in 1991. So it's a, and I really liked that as a um late teen and and or young teen, late teen and into my 20s I really liked that movie. I haven't watched it a lot since then, but I've shown it to you 
Yeah. Have it on Criterion. Yeah. <laughs> you bought it for me. Um, Criterion DVD. <laughs> Probably need to re-get that on Criterion Blu-ray. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, I'm, yeah, I was surprised that I had never seen it. I think part of it is, is like, there was a point in my life where I stopped wanting to, like, give all the guy movies a try. And it is kind of a guy movie. Like, it's it's a very white male. Like, that. that's, it's, there's one female character in the movie. This guys being dudes. So I think that maybe it just never appealed to me in that way. But it it's it is a really it's for all the reasons I don't want to like it. I'm not a particularly big fan of Ben Affleck, Matt Damon. Even though I love almost every movie Casey Affleck's been in, not a big fan of him as a person. Weinstein's big thumbs down. For all the reasons I might want to just be like, no, Goodwill Hunting. There's something about the movie that I really like that just really get it really gets to me in like a emotional way. Um, so. Yeah, I when I stopped being a brat and allowed myself to just experience the movie, I um I really enjoyed it. I I really enjoyed watching it again. I had the same feeling while I dislike many of the people that are involved in making this movie, it's still one of my favorites. And I think a big part of that, I mean, the the writing of this movie is very good. Yeah. Particularly the dialogue. The dialogue feels natural. It's so other than when it gets monologue-y. See, I, I was going to say, like, there's there's a lot of monologues that... There are a lot of monologues yeah. in this movie. It loves it's, it loves a monologue. And, you know, I, I love a monologue. I know that for some people that's, like, a monologue completely pulls them out of the movie because that's not really how real people talk. Yeah. Um, I'm here for a monologue. Me too. Especially any monologues in this movie delivered by Robin oh, Williams. I just love him so much. I'm almost guaranteed... It's almost guaranteed that anytime Robin Williams is... His character of Sean is on screen, and if he is delivering any sort of dialogue or, or a monologue, I'm probably crying. Yeah, it's so good. There are it does show its age a little bit, just yeah. with some of the language choices and some of the jokes and references that it chooses to make. Yeah, and I, I personally am not a fan of the score. Yeah, the thing with the score is that it's trying to balance the quirkiness of Danny Elfman, who did the score, and then. Also, like, just the emotional ravaging of Elliot Smith on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 for, I think that is the thing that jives with me the least in this, is, like, the score. When they use the Elliot Smith songs, I, I like it a lot. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, just it, interesting choices there. And it, it does feel like a late 90s, early 2000s film in, in like, the um, almost, like, soft focus that's... Like, there's just yeah. this, like, this, like smudginess to it yeah you know what i mean i know what you're saying um which is fine it's fine like if six feet under has that i think yeah like there's just films made at that time before we got into like the you know when you go back and watch like and when we watched buffy the vampire slayer early in the pandemic i think it was like this where it is just in the square format (laughs) like you can't get a widescreen version of it so yeah like it definitely doesn't feel the way that Persona 1966 felt contemporary, this doesn't. It's it's funny that you say that because the like that feeling of like smudginess or just like that late 90s feel because it's like, yeah, I think of that. I think of like Shakespeare in Love. I think of Gladiator. <laughs> Shakespeare in Love, totally. And then you get like slammed in the face with like Phone Booth and, <laughs> and like those kinds of movies where it's just like chaotic and so yeah. everything's kinetic, everything's moving. There's frames and frames and frames and it's just, yeah. Like, and then this has these like soft movements into the next scene. And yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it feels aged. Like just the look of it feels aged. It feels like it's from a particular, you know, it's like that thing where I think everybody knows now if you put technology in your in your art, you're going to age it. 
because technology turns over so fast. Um, so it's almost better to just leave technology out of it unless you're doing it for a particular reason. Yeah, it, it, feel, it feels of its time. It does. But I think something that this, this movie does really well is get some really great performances out of its characters. Like, yeah. I think that I totally agree with you. Like, this is definitely like a guy's movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the character of Skylar, played by Minnie Driver, is actually like, though she doesn't get a lot to play with, I love her in it. She's great. Like she, she feels like actually human. Yeah. Like you had mentioned in when we were talking about another movie a while back, like the anti manic pixie dream girl. She actually feels like that to mm. me in this, even though considering the type of movie it is, she probably should be a manic pixie dream girl. But she's she's smart and she's funny and she's vulnerable and um I, yeah i actually mini driver is one of the standouts for me in this in a movie with almost no women yeah i do like what film the filmmakers and mini driver did with this character yeah a lot i agree um and casey affleck's hilarious like yeah. i said like he's he's so funny why do i have to hate him in so much in real life and then like all his movies He's like your most watched actor this year. He so is far. currently my most watched actor of the year. And I loved it. Like we watched a ghost story and I loved it. Yeah. Casey Affleck, be better. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we've already gushed about Robin Williams. I mean, I, I believe he won the Oscar for supporting actor. Did he? For this movie. I believe so. Deservedly so. Yeah. It, his character is, is so good in this and he plays it so well. He uses the right amount of Robin Williams isms. While also just making this character feel fresh and um, different than many of his other roles. His uh, his performance in this reminds me a lot of another movie that he's done that I don't know. It, I don't know if it's as widely seen. Um, it's called Awakenings. Mm-hmm. And it's directed by Penny Marshall, who directed Big. There you go. Um, and I teach this film, so I watch it a lot. And his performance in, in both of those kind of has that. It, it still has his humor at moments, but like... They're both very emotional performances and they're they're dramatic movies. Um, and I, I really like what Robin Williams does in Awakenings as well. And it's if you haven't seen that movie and you never heard of it and you love Robin Williams as much as most all of us do, it's worth checking out. There's something a few episodes back I mentioned that one of my favorite genres when it's done right is the dramedy. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a sucker for a comedic actor is introduced to us as just a, com- a comedy king or queen from the outset you know like the jim carrey the the robin williams the jason siegels will ferrell stranger than fiction will ferrell's like when they're just in your mind is one thing and then they deliver a dramatic performance that yeah that's a great example will ferrell there's one scene in stranger than fiction that always crushes me and always gets me and his his performance throughout the whole movie is so good but when they just subvert that expectation Mm -hmm. and are so good at playing straight and being so upfront with that with an emotion and an action that is so different than anything else they've done you get me right in the heart yes like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind with jim carrey truman show truman show is great i'm i haven't watched any of adam sandler's dramatic stuff like i haven't seen punch drunk love and i haven't seen uncut Uncut gems Gems. um a little bit like not a fan of adam sandler but probably will eventually watch those movies but yeah robin williams just like so good yeah so reflecting on all of that, how does this make you feel? Um, this movie made me feel grateful for therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, it, it it just like it made me smile. Like it's 
it's a it's an award movie you know like it's a it's an it's an academy award movie like it has academy award movie written all across it and it works for me it's one of those academy award movies that works for me so it it yeah. just it it made me feel those emotions that academy award mo- movies are trying to manipulate me into feeling with like big heart swells and smiles and this and that but i feel like there is something just a little bit more charming about it than say like a green book yeah (laughs) you know i've never seen green book but yeah i like that this is a movie that you know it achieves its ability to like we'll probably rewatch it more times before before we're dead (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah um we can acknowledge that it it isn't perfect and that it does have some issues, but we can still love it for what it is. So the next one, I think also came a little out of left field. Um, you'd never heard of this movie. No. Like title came up and you were like, I have no idea what this is. Um, and then when you figured out what it was, and I'll ask you to say what you said, if you remember later, and if not, I'll bring it up. Um, but I picked this because it was on Criterion and it's something that I wanted to watch for a long time. So it's the 1985 movie Desert Hearts. Um, It is directed by Donna Deitch and written by Natalie Cooper. And then it was based on a novel by a Canadian superstar, apparently according to Wikipedia, I've never read anything by her, (laughs) named Jane Rule. Um, And it was starring Helen Shaver, Patricia Charbonneau, and Audra Lindley. Yeah, so I will give you a little bit of a brief synopsis. While waiting for her divorce papers, a repressed professor of literature unexpectedly seduced by a carefree spirited young lesbian (laughs) that is the imdb synopsis um which you don't actually pick up on for a little bit and when you picked up on it do you remember what you said no you're like is this a gay lady movie (laughs) and then you were like of course it is um i love those movies yeah so yeah what did what did you think of 1985's desert hearts um this was the other movie of the week that had a bit of a Twin Peaks effect mm-hmm. for me. Um, a Twin Peaks effect in terms of queer stories being told in cinema, mm-hmm. where this was, and again, we might discover more as we're going through the back catalog of cinema, but this this feels like, you know, kind of a bit of a first of its kind before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it does explore some similar things that we've seen in stories that have come more recently. But again, I, I thought... It did it very beautifully yeah. and very gently, um, which I really liked. But something that kind of hit me more on a personal level is that it has that 80s, 90s vibe that mm. that just kind of triggers a bit of nostalgia for me. Like the smoky interiors, the music, it kind of makes me feel like I'm at my grandparents' old house. Which is interesting, though, because the movie's not set in the 80s. Y- yeah. It's set in the 1950s, I believe. But it, yeah. But, <laughs> but, like, it, but it doesn't feel like it really i'm like the cars definitely look like they're from the 50s yeah the hairstyles and the outfits do not those feel like they're straight out of the 80s yeah <laughs> yeah like i i i was fully aware of that but like that's just but it, it does feel like an 80s movie yeah, yeah. because like it wouldn't necessarily make sense that you know it, it takes place in nevada and they're playing just johnny cash and elvis the whole time and that's not really hot in the 80s <laughs> so yeah there's a lot of buddy holly yeah. Literally, this movie has like almost an identical soundtrack to Pleasantville. Which, yeah, like, you said that. Yeah. yeah, which like I just finished teaching it, so and I talk a lot about, or I talk a decent amount about the um, use of music in the film in Pleasantville, and I was just like, whoa! Like I've just heard all these songs and talked about them recently, and that's Buddy Holly. 
Um, can I just mention, never, well, don't recognize Patricia Charbonneau from anything. Apparently she was in She's All That, which I've seen. Um, her character of Kay, what a babe. Ooh, yeah. That, I, that's exactly what I wrote down. You wrote I, down what a babe? <laughs> I, I wrote Patricia Charbonnet, Kay, total babe. <laughs> I have Patricia Charbonnet's Kay, what a babe. <laughs> Soulmates. <laughs> um, um, yeah, that character, if you like queer cinema, you have to meet this character. Yeah, big time. The the other the other main character, Vivian, not bad looking either. No, no. Um, she's she's holds was, her own. She made me very jealous because she's just taking time off from her job. She's not yeah. working. She's just resetting herself. She's eat, pray, loving without it being like, ugh, eat, pray, love. Problematic? Eat, pray, love? Yeah. Uh, it's just like, it gets made fun of a lot. Oh, yeah, okay. Not familiar. Julia Roberts. It's a book. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it is a movie with Julia Roberts, but it's also a book. Um, but I thought she was great. But she was making me, Vivian was making me jealous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, probably at first and then maybe not so much later. Yeah. 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 I want to escape from my life and go be on a ranch and... Around a bunch of people that just seem content to like make me food and look after me and just allow yep. me to like live that restarting yeah, my like life. Yeah, like have journey. snacks in the middle of the night. Yeah. Make you tea when you wake up in the night. Like, Yeah. If if anyone wants to fund me taking some time off in like a cabiny type place, I'm here for it. Go fund me. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I want to make fun of about this movie is like how much it just loves a fade to black transition. Whoo! Yeah, that is its key form of transition. Fade to black and wipes. Oh, there are some. Yeah, there are some. Loves wipes. a wipe. Yeah. And like these people haven't really like like everybody involved. The director, the writer. I think the writer, this is the only thing that she's written that I could find. I'm like, didn't really go on to do a ton of other things. Curious if like this movie played a role in that because it does have like, to me, what is a, what must have been a very unsupported by mainstream media, like sex scene in it. Yeah. That I'm like, I, I can't imagine that the general cinema world was happy about this. Yeah. And so I wonder if this film did impact the careers of the people involved in it. And um, I think it's great that it has a spot on the Criterion, in the Criterion Collection, um, and that it's, you know, elevated and given a spotlight for, like, doing these things in a time where maybe there were consequences for, for doing them. And like you said, maybe we'll discover, like, this film was inspired by something made in the 20s, and they were doing it then, too, probably. Mm-hmm. But for now, this felt, like, radical, yeah. And interestingly, still feels radical. Yeah. And like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I just feel what probably added to that, but what makes the storytelling and everything about this movie as good as it is, is that it, it's written and directed by women. Mm-hmm. Written and directed by queer women. Yeah. It's, and, and you feel that throughout, like you feel that honesty and you, you feel that th- coming through the characters and... It's not blue is the warmest color. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> which no. which is all all wrong. And maybe it wouldn't have gotten as much flack if it were made by a man. But I think because maybe mm. it's all it's like a, you're saying desert hearts. If desert desert hearts had been yeah, made by a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so. yeah, it yeah, it is interesting. And I mean there's this thing about this movie where like some of the beats and like the story of these queer women in the South in the nineteen fifties, or I guess it's Nevada in the South. I don't know US geography. <laughs> Who cares? 1950s United States, queer women. Like, some of the beats feel like 
they they like they feel like we have to hit this beat yeah in a way that i'm like i think now if that film was made we could maybe infuse it with a little bit more complexity but it probably was really necessary at the time to tell Mm. this particular story in this particular way because there were few if any depictions of this on the screen you know i read a little thing on wikipedia about jane lynch like from Mm. glee and what's that game show she does hollywood game night or something (laughs) i like that (laughs) i like like it um i read that she just watched like she as a as a young person like watched this film on repeat because it felt like she was being seen and that there wasn't a depiction of someone like her and so how important to have this film in 1985 still feels important now 100 percent. and it's it's honestly it's quite it's just quite lovely it is and uh, yeah i appreciate that so much about movies like this and uh, and movies that make people that are underrepresented on film feel seen and heard like I, I love that like good will hunting that's for me mm-hmm. and it's not for me yeah i can like it and i do but uh yeah and, and it's dime a dozen like yeah. but you know something like this i recall when we went to see black panther in the theater and oh. like it was can i tell a little story about that yeah um so when we went to see black panther in the theater i was so excited like after seeing um, the character of Black Panther in Civil War, I was like all in on the character. But we went to we went on opening night as we typically do. Well, for any movie that we really are excited about, we try and go on opening night. But it's there's something special about seeing a blockbuster movie on opening night when like people are really excited about it. And there was some white guy behind us who started shushing a family of kids of color. And I was just like, dude, this film is not for you. If these kids want to talk during this movie, they deserve to talk during this movie. If they want to be like super giddy and excited, like this is not the movie where I'm shushing a kid. And like you shouldn't either. And I think it's important when we go see movies like that aren't for us, but we're the generosity of the filmmakers are offering us a window into a world that's for somebody else that we respect who the movie's for when we go and see it. Yeah. And that like we're we're being offered a chance to see it. And so we we need to handle that with the care that it's being offered to us. Yeah. And I feel like this film is like that. Yeah. That's the parallel I was drawing. It's just like I I so love like hearing stories like Jane Lynch's or seeing the reactions of kids and the young people and just young and older people that families that went to see Black Panther together and just being so excited by feeling seen in a blockbuster movie that is sold out mm-hmm. and it, i don't know it's so cool and it just it just it just warms my little white heart <laughs> <laughs> your little white boy heart <laughs> yeah um yeah so this yeah you you had never heard of this movie even though like it is considered a classic queer cinema lesbian cinema film and you didn't pick up on that till a bit into the movie so you you've now seen this important film, 1985 Desert Heart. Desert Hearts, how did it make you feel? Like I said, it made me feel nostalgic in a way that we've kind of determined doesn't necessarily make sense, but makes a little bit of sense. And like I said, we've seen more of stories like this or that kind of pull similar beats from something like this. And that's important. And it makes me proud and excited to see 
people telling these stories. Mm. And I have no doubt that the people making these movies have had to have lots of boardroom conversations where they're like, screw you, I'm making what I want to make and I'll do it independently or I'll do it with your help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not going to take your notes or I'm, I'll take them, but I'm going to make them my way, you know? And that makes me so happy that this was shared when it was and that it can it can continue to influence. And like I said, it's freaking awesome that it was made by queer ladies and that wanted to tell this story. Mm. And it introduced us to Patricia Charbonneau, whose character of Kay is a total babe. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah, I'm with you. It makes me excited to continue to see films that are made by people who haven't gotten a chance to make films before. Yes. My favorite. My favorite. Yep. Love it. Our last movie of the week is an interesting one. Um, yeah, tell so, us about it. Yeah, so it was Friday night, and we weren't really sure where we were, what we were going to do. And we got a little text message from a new friend of ours, Jeremy Saunders, of the podcast Sick Boy. And he asked us if we'd seen the movie Hellbender yet, which was a movie we had saw a trailer for a little while back, and it kind of just fell off our radar. We were intrigued by the trailer, but then... Yeah. I think because it's um it's a Shutter exclusive, yeah. So it's not getting advertised everywhere. We just kind of forgot about it. Yeah. So because he's like, I'm gonna sit down and watch this, and I'll report back to you guys what I think about this. And we're like, what the hell? Maybe we'll watch it too. <laughs> so yeah, we dug into Hellbender, uh, which came out in 2021. So this is wild. So it stars Zelda Adams, Toby Poser, and John Adams. It was directed, written. And pretty much everything else was done by Toby Poser, John Adams, and Zelda Adams. Who go under the moniker, the The Adams Adams Family. family. (laughs) Like the show, but not spelled the same. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Little Uh, John Coffey for you there. Um, So we we dug into this, and it was was a ride. The first thing I want to say is the opening scene is killer. Yeah, it is so gross and exciting and surprising. Yeah. I was in. I was in from the opening scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to say that right off the bat, but dive in and tell me what you thought about this one. I I had a lot of fun with it. Like, it was a ride. Um, It is definitely, like, a true independent film. Yes. Like, I think the the phrase indie film, independent film, gets thrown around a lot when, like, it's an A24 film. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah you know it had some help like we're just saying indie because we're and i am 100 percent guilty of this but saying indie to mean not blockbuster this is an independent film this is yeah. a film made with what i what what felt to me like limited funds and and that shows at times yeah there's there's a line between indie indie the genre and indie the reality the reality of how a film was made yeah yeah and the tools available to the filmmakers yeah like arcade fire are still referred to as an indie band (laughs) i i assume they have lots of money and support (laughs) agree to disagree yeah Yeah. it managed to do that thing that especially when i was younger and discovering horror films for the first time and you see a film that likely didn't have a huge budget or a or you know it had people who love horror films and just want to make them and you can feel that in every frame of the movie right that these people are all in on what they're doing and then it just gets me excited for new voices in horror cinema so while it it's independent nature shows at times Mm -hmm. 
it still felt really like new and innovative to me and particularly in the um it's a witch film it's a witchy film there's a lot of witch films out there right now witches are making a comeback you know and it felt like something i hadn't seen before which was really cool yeah i agree through the use again i maintain i'm a broken record on this but through great practical effects Mm -hmm. some iffy cgi effects (laughs) They're not terrible. No. Like, they're not Stephen King's The Langoliers or Langoliers, however you say it. If you've seen that movie, you know, you know. Yeah. But they they use that and they, they use, like, some beautiful cinematography. Like, yeah. they spend some money on some cameras here to shoot some great things. And I think that's also the benefit of having it being, like, this really close. It's a family that's making this. And there's credit to three people that are the directors and writers. So, you know... It's cool to know that some scenes were like, okay, Zelda, you're going to take this one or Toby's on this one or John's doing this one. Like, it's just kind of this amalgam of different visions that all come together and and work really well together. For the most part. I think there's times where yeah. you can feel perhaps that pull. Yeah. Of the like mm-hmm. different, the different, um, I think there's times where you can feel where there, there may be or, or a couple different visions happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I'm intrigued by all of those visions. Yeah. I feel like it does a really good job of kind of going through the different beats of the story and like the different acts of the story. Like you kind of, mm-hmm. it, set, it, put, it sets you up in one place. Like I said, that opening scene puts you in one kind of place and then it goes to a different one. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of goes to a different one and it kind of, it kind of does that. It, it's a wild ride. Yeah. You said it was a ride at the beginning. It was and very, it is, it's yeah. very much that. I think if you're somebody that um that you want everything that you watch to feel perfectly flashy and polished and best of the best, you're probably not going to like this movie if you're not willing to give something that's maybe up and coming a chance. Mm-hmm. But I think if you're willing to like give this a chance, give this kind of like family do it yourself film a chance, I think that there's some really great thing that, things it has to offer. Every single time it uses blood, some of the best blood I've seen used. Um, Loved that. And particularly for me, the dynamic between the character of Izzy, played by Zelda Adams, and the mother, played by Toby Poser, who are mother and daughter in real life, consistently engaging Mm -hmm. and consistently something that I was... Like, that's the heart of the film. And the two of them... Like, I didn't, I don't think I realized that they were for sure mother and daughter as we were watching. And yeah, like that, that relationship that they must have outside of that, you feel that in the portrayal of these characters and the dynamic that the two characters have. Um, it's those little moments you can kind of yeah, see. Yeah, it was really cool. And while there's other, other moments of the film that maybe didn't work as well for me. Yeah. I, I'm like really excited by it. And I just, I don't know, like, knowing that this family made this thing together because they love making this thing just like makes me really happy. Yeah. I agree with you on the feelings of the movie itself, but it makes the movie just a little bit sweeter because of, of knowing exactly that, that this family wanted to make this thing. Yeah. Right. They, they did the music they did, which is, uh, I also really, like yeah, I liked the music. <laughs> I don't think everyone would, but I did. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it was cool. And I think if you are really, if you you really like horror and you're willing to give like something that is actually independent a try, um, I think this movie could like, could use some people giving it a try. Yeah. It has an excellent Rotten Tomatoes rating. Yeah. 
it but does. are not so hot rating everywhere else. Um, yeah. And I think that's, you know, maybe a little unfair to it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, there was one more piece that I wanted to say just about kind of the things that they did throughout the movie that I thought worked really well is they weren't afraid to play with comedy throughout. No, it had some funny moments. Yeah, it yeah. did. And it didn't feel, I mean, if it did feel hammy, it was hammy in the right way. Mm-hmm. And I, I I thought it just kind of, it complemented all of the opposite of that, which was any of the, um, well, I guess horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, after watching this one, how did it make you feel? Uh, this made me feel really invigorated by the love of filmmaking that people have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because I don't know that everyone making films and even some of the movies we love, love what they're doing. Yeah. You know, any of us, I think, can fall into that trap. Maybe trap's not the right word, but fall into the monotony of a job that maybe at one point we loved and and it's become a grind or we've lost the love we had for it. And like, I felt the love for filmmaking in this. It also, I want to tell a couple of funny little stories. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know that we've ever talked about this, but, you know, we as, you know, 32, just about 32, you're 32, I feel like I'm 32 because you're 32, but I'm a couple months away from that. Um, We grew up in a time where I feel like it was pretty common if you were in suburbia that your parents were videotaping everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like there was a camcorder in your house. And so I, as a kid, um, would take that camcorder and make little movies. And when I was in like grade four, I started making horror movies. Do you know this? No. So did you? Horror movies? Yeah. No. No. Okay. So there, there's one that I, I don't know that we ever made it, but that I was making with the the kind of little group of there was four of us that were friends in elementary school. Um, I want to say I wrote the script, but it could have been a group effort. It was. It had some kind of name like the park in the woods by the house or something <laughs> like that. Um, and we were going to film it. I don't know that we ever did. My memories are hazy from grade four, but. Um, at the the wood park that was by uh elliot yeah, and i actually yeah. grew up without knowing it on the same street we didn't know each other but we were in the same crescent um and there was this park made like entirely of wooden metal which like maybe maybe that sounds like all parks but <laughs> if you know if you know the park it was just it was a particular it's not there anymore and we were going to film it there and we like worked on it and worked on it worked on it i still have the script um do you really? I do. Uh, I was a really lovely thing that um, I want to say in late high school, one of the friends from that group had kept it and photocopied copies for all of us and gave it to us in high school. Nice. Um, Send it to A24. <laughs> the, par- the park in the woods by the house. Yeah, you're sleeping on this. By Kylie Burton, age eight. We're going to get a big break here. <laughs> I'm sure it's garbage. But, <laughs> you know, and then in, in junior high, I was elevating my horror um, with some of my junior high friends and I remember doing a lot of carrots with uh, red dyed corn syrup to look like severed fingers mm. um, did a lot of that and was filming some of those never actually made a full horror film but like was always working at it um, and then I kind of realized and I'm like this with kind of all my creative endeavors and this is what's so exciting about this podcast to me is that I'm a writer as well and when I write I don't write fiction I think I realized at a certain point that I was really interested in film, but not in writing new stories. Like I, I became really interested in like documentary film. And then in grade, I want to say oh, grade eight or grade nine, 
did a documentary with one of my friends for for school about uh, the bias against teenagers in stores at lunch hour on Main Street. <laughs> and it was, I'm going to say it's, it's really good. I don't think I have a copy of it anymore, but we like, yeah, it was like this investigative journalism where we like looked into like, oh, if you have a backpack, you're not allowed in the store, biased. Um, we like interviewed our principal. <laughs> I just I, imagine this rubber stamp going across the street. That's just biased. biased. What I do remember distinctly is that we interviewed our principal and it, I was, I was young, I was in junior high and I, I realized through my own manipulative tactics that I couldn't trust that the things that I watched and read were true because we interviewed our principal about like, um, you know, stores not allowing teenagers in at lunch. And he said, sometimes it's not our kids, but usually it is. That's what he said. And we cut it. So it said, it's not our kids. <laughs> you sneaky sneaks. But I'm sure that many documentaries do that. So anyway, and I also was, um I was making... I want to say freaky movie with one of my friends where we were doing like is in junior high it was like a scary movie ripoff so we were doing like horror comedy and then I got really into doing this um filming this talk show that I did with uh, one of my friends I uh, called the Dr. Kylie show <laughs> a riff on Dr. Phil and my brother was often involved in it and he'd like dr- we'd like dress up <laughs> it's like bizarre half human half cyborg things and do these <laughs> weird interviews so I'd be like yes I am um, fell into the toxic waste. <laughs> like, so I was making these all of these things, and I this film reminded me that there was a point in my life where I wanted to make movies. Mm-hmm. And I think in in the end, that's not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. There's no part of me now that I love talking about movies. I love watching movies. I love watching specials about people who make them. I'm. I would happily act in a movie. I don't think I'm a particularly good actor, but I would do it. Um, and I would happily make like behind the scenes footage, like documentary stuff for movies. But I don't think I want to write, direct, produce, be involved in in film in any other way. But there was a part of me that once did. And just like, you know, with that like spirit of a kid who believes that all the creative world is open to them, that I used to do that. And this film reminded me of that and made me so excited for people that don't lose that spirit. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know about the the <laughs> horror movie bit. Did you know about the Dr. Kylie show? I didn't know about that. <laughs> I, I, still love I it. wish I had footage from all of these things. I mean, maybe I don't because it's all probably so embarrassing, but also like kind of beautiful that there was a point in time where I just like thought I could make stuff and like I hadn't yet been taught by the world that I shouldn't and that I'm not good enough at it and how beautiful that this family is doing it. And so we should support that. I think that that's both really sad and really beautiful. And like, I think, and I think that again, like you kind of mentioned it, but it it comes back to us wanting to do this. Like it's a lot easier to not make a thing. Mm -hmm. And it's scary to put a thing out into the world. Yeah. To put yourself out into the world, to put this thing that means something to you out into the world. Like that's why when I look at this, this film Hellbender and I think like it's a truly independent film and I see Rotten Tomatoes has this rating of 96% because the reviewers get it. They get the promise in it. And what's really, there are moments in this that are excellent and innovative. And while it doesn't hit on all cylinders all all the time, if these people keep making movies, it's gonna. And so like people Mm -hmm. just crapping on them for not yet being Wes Craven or... James Wan. Yeah. like John Carpenter. I mean, have you seen Saw? The first one, like, kind of sucks, but it's also amazing. Yeah. Right? Like, we need to give these things a chance. And, like, I'm just so 
inspired by people who keep doing what they want to do even when people just like throw tomatoes at them yeah rotten or not yeah (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i'm proud brings me back to feeling proud of us for for making a thing and putting it out into the world even though it's scary yeah Uh, i love that i'll echo that too and grateful for those of you who are going along on this ride with us yeah we love you all okay that time it's that time yes. okay it's time to name the bad dad and the rad dad of the week and i got a bonus daddy <laughs> i don't so again i'm excited to see who it is <laughs> all right um let's start with you why don't you hit me with your bad dad of okay the week? my bad dad of the week is audra lindley's character francis from desert hearts mm. and i've come with notes I've, okay. I've taken note of your notes and i need arguments pre-prepared so i can beat you yeah so these are my arguments she's selfish she weaponizes her grief to keep people at bay and manipulate them into doing what she wants them to do. Yeah. Um, and she uses grief as an excuse to not move forward in her life to the point that it's, I think, unacceptable. Um, she is impulsive and childish and doesn't behave as a parent should. But she has enough moments where she feels like a really good parent that that impulsiveness and childishness and um, that it it could convince someone to stick around, which is really scary. And she's homophobic. So. Damn, those are really good notes. <laughs> Thanks. Shoot. I took note of your notes and now I'm going to win all the time. You are. Um, I, you're definitely going to take it. Um, Cause I, I now realize I need to be careful about mine. I chose Mark Duplass's character from creep two. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought maybe we shouldn't do that again. <laughs> yeah. I, I went back and forth on it, but I was like, no. And so I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm also kind of piggybacking on your work and I'm going to agree with everything you put forward about him in the original oh, creep goodness. nomination. Okay. Um, but also just his energy in this movie just scares the shit out of me. <laughs> And, and I can't trust him. So I, I don't want him as a dad. And that makes him a bad dad. Um, seems like a weak argument compared to your argument. So <laughs> I am totally willing to bow down to your bad dad okay. nominee this week. I, I did consider putting Mark Duplass back up. One of the reasons I didn't is like, I actually felt like just the, the creepy, particularly dad energy with like the stuff I mentioned last time with Tubby Time and Peach Fuzz isn't there in this one. Yeah. So I feel like he's like that particular creepy dad energy is a little bit more heightened in the first one and in the second one for me. Still there. Yeah. But I I do believe I deserve to win this one. <laughs> you do. So yeah, bad dad of the week, Audra Lindley's Francis. Stick it. Stick it. Okay. Rad dad of the week. Hit me with it. Robin Williams' character of Sean in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> yeah, you guys can't see you listeners, but I am nodding along. Uh, I have written Rad Dad, Robin Williams, Sean, no contest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the few notes, I, I, I felt pretty confident about <laughs> yeah, this I thought one. we would have the same one. Yeah. Um, but the few notes that I did prepare are that um, he does a really good job of showing that he's not invincible. Mm. And he shows a lot of vulnerability mm-hmm. in this. Um, and that he's working through his own grief. Mm-hmm. And 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 he's not closing himself like he's not closing himself off to it. Even by the end of the movie, there he evolves, but like there there's still openness there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and just in terms of being a rad dad, I just feel like he would fight for what's best for me. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure he does. And the boy, <laughs> yeah, what's best for the boy? Um, um, and he's Robin Williams. So I'm gonna add 
very little to what you just said, but, um, you know, I thought that it was an interesting contrast between the character of Francis, who we just named as Bad Dad, and the character of Sean, because both of them are grieving the loss of a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are times where I'm watching Goodwill Hunting and I'm like, Sean, you you need to you need to move on. But unlike Francis, he he's open to it. Yeah. Um, so I have for my notes here, he's patient, he's empathetic. And even in that patience and empathy, he still requires accountability mm. from Will. So he doesn't let him off the hook, even when he understands what's going on with him. And he also takes on accountability for himself. Like he practices what he preaches. And then I have written, Robin Williams, like Willem Dafoe, is an ultimate dad. Yeah. He's been comforting to me since I was a little kid and he will always make me smile. He's one of those people that um, like kind of, this is going to sound like schmaltzy, but like I grew up on Robin Williams films. Like I grew up on (laughs) Mrs. Doubtfire and Jack and Aladdin and what other things has he been in? Flubber. Oh, Flubber. (laughs) Loved Flubber. Like he was this, I feel this way about John Goodman too, Mm. that there's just this kind of like, and and maybe it's because they actually remind me a lot of my my real dad. Um, I don't know. There's just something that like always feels like this like comforting fatherly presence about them. And like, I feel like it's the ultimate version of that in Goodwill Hunting. So I felt confident about this too, but I was like, yeah, there's just, there's no, there's no other argument. It is robin williams character of sean yeah so sean and robin williams rest in peace but be our dad dad. um also no contest for bonus daddy this week it's patricia charbonneau oh yeah (laughs) as k in (laughs) desert hearts yeah i i will second that she deserves it don't know what she's up to now but wherever you are god bless you yeah so we're just about out of here um it was a wild week of movies, took us a lot of different places. We were in the 60s, we were in the 80s, we were in the 90s, and then we made it back to 2021. Brought up a lot of personal stories and emotions throughout the week, yeah, too. Yeah, it did. Yeah. yeah, like it's, it was a it was a great week of film for us, even though it was a bizarro ride. Um, so we're going to leave you with our rad wreck, which we've kind of all, already mentioned, which is uh, check out Criterion. And the Criterion channel is great. It's pricey. Um can do your two weeks for free and then cut out of it if you want. Make your little figure out what's on it. Uh, Letterboxd has a great feature, and we're always rad wrecking Letterboxd, where it'll actually tell you uh, what streaming services the movie is available on uh, to rent or buy. Rent, buy, or stream. Um, so you could collect all the movies you want to watch on Criterion, get it for two weeks for free, watch as many as you can, and then let go of it mm-hmm. um, because streaming sites are pricey. But I am excited. I'm really excited that we have Criterion Channel on there now. And we'll make the best use of it that we can. So check out Criterion. Check out their covers that they do for films. They're beautiful. Um, and hopefully you'll find something new that you hadn't heard of before because we found two of them. Yeah. And, and I mean, at the very least, it, they're worth a follow on Instagram because nothing gets me more excited than when they drop a batch of new covers for their upcoming titles that they're releasing yeah. into the collection. And speaking of Worst Person in the World. Yeah. Worst Person in the World, which we've we said on this podcast we want to watch again might just pick up the Criterion Collection uh, physical Blu-ray of it and watch it at home. So that's, yeah, great red rack. Just want to say thank you all for listening to this episode and the episodes previous to this. Um, we have a new episode that comes out every Thursday. Uh, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. 
you can also get a sneaky little peek at what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are Elliot Cuss and Kylie Burton. Spelling for those are in the show notes. We'd also love it if you could drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. We'd also love if you have a movie lover in your life or a podcast lover or, you know, a bit of a Venn diagram of both. If you could just share this out with them and, you know, maybe they maybe they can take something away from this and, you know, help us grow an audience of people that love listening to a couple little guys in a basement talk about movies and how much it means to them and how it makes them think and feel. So we'd appreciate that a lot. That's about it. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Mm-hmm.